Support for this podcast comes from TradePoint Atlantic, the former home of Bethlehem Steel and now one of the largest, most strategically significant intermodal global logistics hubs in the country. Learn more about TradePoint Atlantic and its commitment to preserving the story of Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point at TradePointAtlantic.com. Welcome back to Sparrows Point, an American Steel story. Aaron Henkin here. Our last episode was the first episode in this six-part series. We got to walk a mile in the work boots of some steel workers from Sparrows Point. And this episode, we're going to rewind back to the beginning. And I mean, like, not just the beginning of Sparrows Point, but the beginning of steel itself. As in, what is steel exactly? Steel is refined iron. This is Mark Reuter. It is iron of which its carbon and other impurities have been removed. Mr. Reuter knows a lot about steel. And which limited and controlled amounts of carbon and other alloys have been added. Mark Reuter used to work as a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Then he decided to dedicate 11 years of his life to writing a monster of a book called Sparrows Point, Making Steel, the Rise and Ruin of American Industrial Might. For obvious reasons, he is a go-to guy if you're going to make a podcast about Sparrows Point. He also happens to be a great storyteller, which is a nice bonus. When we met up, though, for an interview, before Mr. Reuter would tell me anything about Sparrows Point, he wanted to make sure I understood what a big deal the invention of steel was. For thousands of years, humans knew how to make iron, but had a very hard time making steel. The Persians began a process, and steel, how they developed it, was a almost as exotic and as valuable as silver or gold. This early Persian steel was so precious because it was so rare. And the reason it was so rare was because it was so difficult to make. The difficulty lay in the fact that to make steel and to get that carbon and other impurities out of iron required heats of over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And for a long time, no one could figure out a sustained way to keep iron that hot. But then this British scientist came along in the mid-1800s. His name was Henry Bessemer. And Bessemer figured out a really surprising, kind of counterintuitive way to do it. Here's what he discovered. By introducing cold air into uh, highly heated iron, you could actually intensify the heat of that iron, raise it up by over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, and um, dissolve the impurities and make this beyond bubbling hot incandescent steel. So this guy, Henry Bessemer, created a special kind of a forge, which he proudly named the Bessemer Converter. And this thing was basically a huge cylinder, like as big as a row house, with layers and layers of refractory brick. And it was revolutionary, so much so that a U.S. steel company at the time called Pennsylvania Steel ordered one to be built in England and shipped across the ocean. Legend has it this ship sank halfway across, and that Bessemer converter is somewhere at the bottom of the Atlantic. But that company, Pennsylvania Steel, over in Steelton, Pennsylvania, they had big plans, and they were not about to be put off. They ended up building their own replica of the Bessemer converter, because this was just after the Civil War, and at that time, building rails for the U.S. railroad industry 
was big business. Pennsylvania Steel had actually been bought in big part by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. See, up to that point, rails had been made of iron, but steel, if you could make it in large enough quantities, steel was the future. Steel rails were greatly superior to the then iron rails being used as the rail lines were expanding into the Midwest. And it was because iron was brittle, iron would crack, especially under the pounding of a steam locomotive. And it had to be replaced a lot. Steel was much stronger. So let me set the scene here for you for what happened next. Pennsylvania Steel prospered big time because they were the trailblazers in this newfangled steel industry that all of a sudden took off like gangbusters in the U.S. Now remember, the main ingredient for steel is iron ore. And the mountains in Pennsylvania had a fair amount, but if you were really going to think big, and Pennsylvania Steel, they were thinking big, you were going to need a whole lot more iron ore. So that was the context for um, a mission by a, um, one of the first trained metallurgists in America. His name was Frederick W. Wood. And this Frederick W. Wood, he was a young guy, but a brilliant engineer. Went to MIT, joined Pennsylvania Steel around age 21, became head of its blast furnace department, and shot up through the ranks from there. And uh, the management asked him in the mid-1880s to um, go on an um, exploration. A um, friend of management, then based in Philly, the management, found out from a um, steamship company that there were rumored to be large amounts of iron ore near Santiago, Cuba, in the eastern end of Cuba. So in the mid-1880s, Frederick Wood went down to Santiago. And when he got there, he got some mules, he got some local guides, and they went out 20 miles to the east of Santiago, way out into the hills, and they got to this clearing where they looked up and what they saw were these giant cliffs. And the cliffs were pure, bare rock. And the bare rock was iron ore. And the iron ore was of sufficient quality and without some of its impurities that it was a... uh, they realized a tremendous source. The, the rumors were true. Cuba had a lot of and some very high-quality iron ore. Well, Frederick Wood headed back to Pennsylvania with this good news, and he said to Pennsylvania Steel, look, this iron ore is so good and so plentiful, it's totally worth the cost of creating an entire shipping infrastructure to get it up here from Cuba. But now remember, Pennsylvania Steel was, you know, in Pennsylvania, so landlocked. They were big thinkers, though, and so they said, hey, instead of lugging all that iron ore inland here to Pennsylvania once we get it to the U.S., let's just build another steel plant right next to the water. That's when they gave Frederick Wood his next assignment. Go find us the best spot to build this new plant. So we packed up and got to work. He studied sites from Philadelphia through Delaware and then into Maryland, and he decided that Baltimore was the best site. Because, remember, the um, steel company was controlled by and the majority owned by the Pennsylvania Railroad, there was an interesting problem that confronted Wood. There were good sites on the east side of Baltimore, which presently is Dundalk and Sparrows Point, but there were also good sites in the western side, which is currently Brooklyn Curtis Bay. 
But the difference was is that the eastern side was controlled then by the Pennsylvania Railroad and the western side by the B&O. So those factors uh, made him arrive at this very swampy um, peninsula that stuck out into the Patapsico River, uh, around 900 acres. There was just one house on it. It was the um, uh, house of an old um, ship captain, and um, people often said that Captain Fitzel liked his isolated spot because it reminded him of being out at sea. Uh, Frederick Wood, through some lawyers in Baltimore, obtained the property and began this huge undertaking to build a state-of-the-art rail-rolling mill uh, that would both serve domestic railroads and would be involved in international sales, which had never been really done before by the steel industry. And so that is the origins of Sparrows Point, and they began building around 1888. You got to imagine it's a pretty overwhelming task to design a state-of-the-art steel mill from scratch. But the guy Pennsylvania Steel tapped for that job was none other than Frederick Wood, the same guy who'd found the Iron Cliffs in Cuba and the Sparrows Point Peninsula. And Mr. Wood, being the brilliant engineer that he was, he set about meticulously building a new kind of mill where every element of production, from its entrance in the harbor to the smelting of the iron and the coal and the limestone to the blast furnace, the Bessemer converter, to the milling equipment that was needed to ultimately shape steel rails, it was all lined up for maximum efficiency and built on a massive scale. The only thing that was missing was a big enough workforce to operate this juggernaut and somewhere for them to live. This is where I want to mention that Frederick Wood had an older brother named Rufus Wood. And he had Rufus design a company town that would match in its um, logic and comprehensiveness the logic and comprehensiveness of the mill. And Rufus um, attacked this with in great enthusiasm. He wrote long letters to his brother, who spent much of his time in Harrisburg at the uh, mother plant. And he often, twice a day, sent um, U.S. mail to his brother describing what he was up to. And what they decided on had the logic of the engineer and the social engineering of uh, a good government sort of uh, reformer. Order was their number one concern, order. So Rufus's company town went up next to the mill on this marshy peninsula of Sparrows Point, and he designed it so that each street would be named after a letter of the alphabet. A street would be the would have one single property, that of the general manager. B Street would have some large houses for the mill superintendents. C Street would have the, the second tier of uh, mill personnel, would have the superintendent of schools, which under arrangement with Baltimore County, was actually financed and the building built. The public school was built, financed, and controlled by the steel company. D Street was the commercial street, and it was entirely taken up by the company store. E and F Streets were the um, row houses, quite nice, quite nice row houses for the skilled working class. Then there was an inlet. It was called Humphreys Creek, and there was a 400-foot-long pedestrian bridge that crossed over it. And on that side of town, on the other side of, the, of Humphreys Creek, was the Black 
laborer's side, which was uh, I, J, and K streets. And those were much simpler, more crowded row houses. Now, it's worth mentioning here that the two brothers, Frederick and Rufus, happened to be the sons of a mill supervisor at the Lowell Mills in Massachusetts, which has come to be considered the birthplace of the company town movement in the U.S. These guys were New Englanders, and they brought this sort of New England ideal down to Baltimore, including one element they thought was essential to a proper company town, sobriety. They got the state legislature in Annapolis to pass a law that remains to this day that for two miles from what was then the um, company store on D Street, no liquor could be sold. So that ordinance um, set up this sort of highly controlled um, community the city on the hill or on in the marshes that they wanted to build to last the ages with this state-of-the-art railrolling mill. At least that was the idea. In his notes to his brother, Rufus would oftentimes complain about how backwards and behind the times this southern city of Baltimore was. Rufus, he was living in the company town he designed with temperance in mind. But one night around 1905, he took a carriage ride out to investigate a distressing rumor he'd heard about some goings-on over on Eastern Avenue. This was the spot where the railway carried freight and passengers into Sparrows Point. And he got there and he saw to his dismay that there was another industry that was doing quite well there. He counted up the number of bars. I think it was something on the order of 35 that he counted in this couple block area. And he lamented the debauchery and depravity. And he petitioned the Board of Commissioners for Baltimore County to do something about it. He failed. And he was very um, exasperated again about the backward ways of Baltimoreans. Now, if you step back and look at the larger time frame here, Baltimore, after the Civil War, was still kind of a small town, industry-wise, compared to like Philadelphia or Boston or New York, or even a lot of the newer Midwestern cities. To put things in perspective, around 1890, when Sparrows Point was just beginning to open, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in Maryland listed the average business in Baltimore City as having around 20 employees. Sparrows Point initially opened with more than 2,000 employees. When it opened, and it had a, um, also on D Street, had a area for the gathering of, uh, for events. And there was a large uh, gathering there. The Cardinal for the United States, the Cardinal Gibbons, uh, went to this, as did the mayor, as did the, the governor of Maryland. And they all... Um, talked about the progress that this steel mill would bring to um, the city of Baltimore. And it did, for a while. But fast forward now to 1916. After World War I hit, the international trade in steel rails, which was Sparrows Point's bread and butter, collapsed, and the mill went into a steep decline. At the same time, a fellow mill uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was thriving. And it was thriving because it's owner, a man called Charles M. Schwab, nothing to do with the brokerage firm. He was a top lieutenant previously for Andrew Carnegie and a flamboyant and um, rather foresighted uh, businessman, entrepreneur. He came up with the idea that he would make Bethlehem Steel what he called the Krupp 
of America. Krupp then was the large German company that was becoming famous as the armor, the military adjunct of the German military, uh, building these, this heavy um, artillery that was, you know, made the German army so powerful during World War I. So this guy, Charles Schwab, was really thriving in 1916. Despite the Neutrality Act, his company, Bethlehem Steel, was selling boats and steel to all sorts of people internationally, including the British and French governments. So he had money to spare, and he had a vision for the future. His vision was is that the military business would soon end, the war would go, and the kind of heavy steel rail plates and other heavy business um, that was then the mainstay of steel would evolve into, he saw a consumer society arising. He saw um, uh, refrigerators, early refrigerators, stoves, uh, Model Ts that were using more and more uh, steel. Now remember, Sparrow's Point was then owned by Pennsylvania Steel, and it was floundering. But Charles Schwab looked at it, and he saw a mill that was at an excellent strategic crossroads of raw materials and international trade. So, in 1916, he bought it. He came to Baltimore a year later, and when he showed up, he got a hero's welcome. More than a thousand of the top businessmen of Maryland and Baltimore crowded into the recently opened Belvedere Hotel to welcome him to town and cheer him on. And Schwab told the the crowd, a cheering crowd, that his plan was to make Sparrows Point the biggest steel mill in the world. And he succeeded. <laughs> After World War I, those consumer markets that Schwab had envisioned, they boomed, just like he'd predicted. And Sparrows Point became the center of tin plate production in the East. They produced the, the unfinished, very thin plates of tin plate by the millions of sheets, the sheets of tin plate, which had different properties, uh, different sorts of coatings to allow them to be canned with vegetables, oysters, all sorts of stuff. It's worth mentioning here that Baltimore, after 1900, was a major national center of canning because of the oyster business. Maryland tomatoes were also one of the biggest sites of produce in the country. So there was a built-in market locally as well as nationally and internationally. Okay, fast forward now to the 1920s. The 20s went very well, but Charles Schwab overexpanded. The 1930s turned out to be very tough for Sparrows Point turned out to be very tough to Charles Schwab, who died in 1939, a pauper in effect. It was not known at the time, but he was bankrupt. Uh, he owned the biggest residence in New York, and that had to be sold and torn down because of his financial difficulties. But just as he died in 1939, World War II erupted, and that really became the golden era of Sparrows Point. It had always built ships at Sparrows Point. That was another one of the innovations of um, Frederick Wood, who in the early 1890s went to England, went to their shipyards, and studied and, shall we say, stole the ideas of how the Brits were then making metal steamboat steamships. Um, and Schwab expanded that. Of course, steel ships were essential during World War II, and the U.S. government contracted Bethlehem Steel to build all of its East Coast victory ships, vessels that were used for transporting troops and supplies to Europe and Africa. 
In fact, the shipbuilding business got so brisk, there wasn't enough space at Sparrows Point. So Bethlehem Steel opened another huge shipbuilding facility in the Brooklyn neighborhood right across the harbor. And uh, at one point, remarkably, that shipyard was producing one ship a day, and it had at its peak 80,000 workers, including many female workers, many female Rosie the Riveters. So Sparrows Point thrived during World War II. After the war, Bethlehem Steel's management kept the late Charles Schwab's vision alive. The American steel industry at that time was really the only steel industry in the world. The British and German and Japanese industries had been ruined during the war. So the U.S. was on top of the world. At one point, 65% of the world's steel production was coming out of the United States. So there was a huge expansion between 1945 and 1958. This was, in many ways, the, in, and certainly in terms of profits, the golden age of American steelmaking. Sparrows Point, which then had, in 1945, around 20,000 workers, by far the largest um, industrial complex in Maryland and really on the entire East Coast, almost doubled to 35,000 by the late 50s. Can I just pause here for a minute and give some props to Mark Reuter? He's been our guide this episode so far, walking us through these many decades of the early history of Sparrows Point. Mr. Reuter is not only a great storyteller, he is a remarkable researcher. He spent 11 years of his life writing the book Sparrows Point, Making Steel, The Rise and Ruin of American Industrial Mites. That said, I'm going to close the cover on Mr. Reuter's book now and introduce you to another great author and historian who's written a beautiful and definitive text of her own about Sparrows Point. Her name is Deborah Rudisill. My connection with Sparrows Point is that most of the men in my family and some of the women worked down the point, as we used to call it. Um, So Sparrows Point was always a huge part of my life. My grandparents lived um, about a mile from the the gates of the factory, and sometimes when we would visit, my grandmother, my dad would walk us over to the point, and we would see the, you know, the flames leaping into the air and the trains rumbling by, and I always found it kind of fascinating, but also a little scary. Rudisill did not end up following in her forefather's career footsteps. She graduated from the science writing master's program at Johns Hopkins University. And she was two books into a science writing career when she had a revelation that she should write a book about her own family roots. And I was just sitting at my desk one day soon after my second book was published. And suddenly this title, Roots of Steel, popped into my mind. And um, it immediately felt right. And uh, so I began talking to people in my family uh, about their time at the point and what the point had meant to them. I then expanded my circle a little bit and I started going around to uh, meetings of seniors. Uh, I I attended some union retiree meetings and it quickly became apparent that not only was there a story there, but it was a, a big big story. 
The full title of that big, big story is Roots of Steel, Boom and Bust in an American Mill Town. It took Rudisil four years to research and write this book, and it ended up being a really cool hybrid of industrial history and family memoir. The Great Depression hit steel towns really hard, and Sparrows Point was no exception to that. The vast majority of workers were either laid off or um, cut back to just a few days a week. It was, it was really tough times down there. Um, and uh, the people who lived in the company town, because by that point, most workers were not living in the company town. They were living offsite in Highland Town, West Baltimore. Uh, but those who did live in the company town were insulated somewhat from the effects of the Depression by the fact that they were living in company-owned housing. So the company didn't get the, kick them out. They were able to buy food and other items on credit at the company store. Even so, it was tough. My grandmother always says that during the Depression, she would keep a pot of soup on the stove and feed anyone who came uh, to the door. The, the plant was um, actually unionized. The CIO organizers had been in Baltimore, CIO being the Committee of Industrial Organizations and the Steelworker Organizing Committee had been in Baltimore um, in, the, in the early 1930s, but weren't making much progress. But right on the eve of World War II, the, the union was voted in to the plant. The, they, they had a vote, um, steelworkers voted to accept the union. And that was a huge, huge change because the company town had always been very resistant to um, union organizing. Then World War II starts, the U.S. gets into World War II, Bethlehem Steel suddenly is awash in all these uh, defense contracts. So not only were the laid-off workers called back to work, but at the point itself, at the shipyards, at the other shipyards that Bethlehem Steel created, uh, ringing Baltimore Harbor, they suddenly needed workers. So people started coming to Baltimore from all over, from Pennsylvania, from New York, from Appalachia, from the South, because suddenly not only were jobs available, but they were also good-paying jobs. Um, this is when my maternal grandparents came to Baltimore to work in the shipyards. The war was boom times for Sparrows Point and boom times for the D Dundalk community, which by then had grown quite a bit since its um, founding during World War One. And that, um, it also enabled um, immigrants and black steel workers who had been up until that point really kept to the less well-paying and dirtier jobs to begin to advance. Um, my in-laws, my uh, grandfather-in-law was uh, an immigrant from Spain who started working at the point in the 1920s, you know, shoveling slag. Um, not making very much money. The family was kind of living hand-to-mouth in Highland Town. But during World War II, he and the other immigrants were given a chance to advance and learn a trade, and he became a machinist. And after that, things were much easier and more comfortable for his family. However, it also has to be said that there was a great deal of racial tension in Baltimore generally, but also at Sparrows Point and its shipyard specifically because... Many white steelworkers and shipyard workers did not want black laborers to have the opportunity to learn a trade and 
you know, God forbid they should be in a supervisory position um, over white steel workers. So there was a near riot at the at the uh, Fairfield shipyard when um, the company was attempting to train some black shipyard workers in, in the trades. And the union, which at that point was, you know, just newly voted into the plant, was kind of in a sticky position, the steelworkers union and also the shipyard workers union, because at this point they're trying to get steelworkers and shipyard workers to join the union. It wasn't an automatic thing. Uh, but at the same time, the CIO unions were always firmly committed to a policy of I, what we call today racial justice. So they were between a rock and a hard place. And in the end, even though the votes of the black steelworkers were absolutely critical in uh, voting the union in, they kind of ditched the African-American steelworkers and basically collaborated with a company to keep this sort of black jobs, white jobs system going for many years until the 1960s when they were forced to change it. Deborah Rudisill is touching on a lot of historical context here, and we're going to get into it in more depth on the next episode in this series when we delve into the history of unions and civil rights at Sparrows Point. You probably also heard her mention the Dundalk neighborhood where she grew up. This was a town built by the success of Bethlehem Steel, and like the company town of Sparrows Point, Dundalk could also feel shut off from the rest of the world. Rudisil interviewed a lot of steelworkers for her book, and her dad was one of them. She says he was different from a lot of the others because, honestly, she didn't think he had much love for the job. He was a very smart man. He was very interested in the world. Um, But he was also, I feel like in my childhood, a very angry man and a very unfulfilled man. And I think that that may have been true of a number of the folks back in those days who grew up in Dundalk or Sparrows Point and who basically, yeah, they could they could get a good paying job, work in the same place as their fathers and their grandfathers and their brothers. Maybe that wasn't the best thing for them, but it was kind of a, a sort of inertia, right? This, you grew up here, this is what you did. The flip side of that, of course, is that if you didn't want to work at Sparrows Point, you could work at some other company in the Baltimore area. So it's not like you were being forced to take a job at Sparrows Point. (laughs) Um, There were other jobs available. But um, there was a certain, I feel like, uh, a lack of agency and a lack of choices when people were sort of filtered into this one particular kind of job because those were the jobs that were available in the community where you grew up. The positive side is that if you took one of those jobs and you went to work every day, um, you were able to buy a home, you were able to get married, you were able to have a family. If your kids wanted to go to college, you could send them to college. So you had a pretty decent life. Now, one of the things that people often forget about those jobs at Sparrows Point is they were very hard jobs, and they were very dangerous jobs. Many, many people, as I detail in the book, were actually killed on site. Many more died in later years from cancers and other diseases caused by exposure to toxic chemicals. And frankly, I think a lot of young people today would not want to and maybe even be able to work as hard as our fathers and grandfathers and our mothers, too, 
worked in those industrial jobs on the point and elsewhere. I mean, it was it was a different world. When I was growing up in Dundalk, the absolute worst thing you could say about a man is he doesn't like to work. He could be an alcoholic. He could be a very angry, frustrated man. But as long as he went to work every day and brought home his paycheck, he was a man. And I think we've kind of moved away <laughs> from that sort of uh, vision of the role of a man is to be a worker and a provider. And some people would say that's a bad thing. Other people would say, well, you know, maybe it's a good thing that people have kind of more choices right now and are not just kind of falling into place with the expectations of their families and their communities. I'm kind of agnostic on that point, I guess. I mean, I think that there were so many... There were so many benefits from growing up in this kind of close-knit community where, you know, people kind of knew what was expected of them. But I also myself, as a teenager especially, found it also a little claustrophobic and stultifying. I mean, I I wasn't even a boy who was going to have to go to work in the mills, but that old bumper sticker live workshop Dundalk that you always saw in cars in the 1970s, I was always like really? You're not going to leave Dundalk to go into Baltimore City 12 miles away? You're not going to try to see other states and other countries? It just felt very limiting to me. But for people who who kind of had that perspective, it was, and I think still is for some of them, very comforting. And I can see that. I can see that and I can respect that too. Deborah Rudisill is the author of Roots of Steel, Boom and Bust in an American Mill Town. And we'll hear more from her as this series continues. As we get ready to wrap up this episode, I want to bring one more voice into the mix here to reflect on what we've learned together over the past half hour or so. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. And Anita, as you've listened along with us this episode to the origin story of Sparrows Point and the neighborhoods that grew up around it, what strikes you? What surprises you? What's your takeaway? Well, first of all, I just want to say that for the past couple of years, we've really been immersed in this Bethlehem Steel story here at the Museum of Industry. And yet I learned so much from this episode. So I'm grateful to you and to the scholars we heard from for that. I think my main takeaway from this episode, I'm reminded of the phrase in real estate, it's location, location, location. And thinking about the decision to locate the steel mill there in the first place, because obviously of the water access, of the rail access, reminds me of um, why I think there's a logistics hub there now, today. It's the same things. It's water access, it's access to rail and now road. It's the fact that Baltimore's port is the farthest west port on the East Coast so that we have closer access to Midwest markets than other East Coast ports. And all of those advantages that made it a prime location for a steel mill still hold today for the kind of use that the point is getting. I learned a lot in this episode about just how elaborately planned the company town of Sparrows Point was as well. I mean, you think there's obvious engineering intention that goes into building the mill itself, but that equal sort of scientific amount of detail went into creating the company town. 
Yes, it was social engineering. And I thought it was really interesting, the point about the fact that um, the Wood Brothers were from Lowell, Massachusetts, and that they brought down those sort of Puritan values of temperance and restraint and tried to embed those in the company town. I I found that really fascinating. And it was an interesting sort of eye-opener that that was all done to create maximum efficiency and maximum profit as well. It was, there was sort of a Puritan element to it, but also a very kind of cold-eyed capitalist element to the way things were designed as well. Yeah, and I guess you would have to really emphasize efficiency when you were opening a plant that was that large. One of the, the, the numbers that surprised me, I don't think I had been aware of them, were the numbers about how the average business in, in the day when Pennsylvania Steel came here was 20, the average number of employees, and Pennsylvania Steel started with 2,000. So that was quite an undertaking for the time. It's no wonder they had to emphasize efficiency. Anita, thanks for your thoughts this episode, and I look forward to uh, getting back together with you again at the end of our our next episode. As do I. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Okay, coming up next time on the podcast, a unionized workforce was never part of the company's original plan. Neither was racial equity. The fight for worker rights and racial justice was an uphill battle. And it was interesting just to see how they went to the Justice Department and they would lobby to make changes. So it would be two, three buses. And when you filled that room up, you would get people's attentions. It took until World War II before the plant was unionized, and it wasn't until the 1970s that Bethlehem Steel was forced to desegregate its job classifications. Next episode, we'll learn what it took to make those changes happen. Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, is a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at thebmi.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from TradePoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.